Well, if you have your Bibles today, and I hope you do, would you take them and open to Ruth chapter 3? Ruth chapter 3. It's here in Ruth chapter 3 by most counts that we kind of hit the climax or the pinnacle of uh, the story of Ruth and Naomi and Boaz. You see, it's in Ruth chapter 3 that, that Naomi begins to shift from empty to full. The, the, that Naomi transitions you know, from bitter back to pleasant. It's here in Ruth chapter 3 that, that in this story, Ruth speaks for the last time. We hear her last spoken words here in this, the climax chapter, Ruth chapter 3. It's here where Boaz verbalizes the commitment that makes this story so significant in all of Scripture when, when Boaz promises to do his part to redeem Ruth and Naomi and to, to bring them from Ruth excuse me, from ruin to redemption. Ruth chapter 3 is by all means the climax of this story in Scripture. But even more important than the climax of the story is the beautiful picture of the gospel that we see play out in Ruth chapter 3. The gospel is on full display here. And what I'd like to do today is look together and see how the gospel is, is pre-enacted, if you will, through the characters in this story. So if you have your Bibles open and you're ready, again, we're in Ruth chapter 3 today, and I'm going to start reading in verse 1, if you'd like to follow along. Ruth chapter 3, starting in verse 1. One day, Ruth's mother-in-law, Naomi, said to her, now, um, let me just pause for a minute here. One day doesn't give us a clue necessarily how long it's been since the end of chapter two, but it's probably been six to eight weeks. Because as we get into chapter three, we see that the harvest is over. So uh, the barley harvest that, that we saw Ruth participating in in chapter two, and then the wheat harvest that follow that, they're both done. So it's been at least a couple of months since the close of chapter two. One day, Ruth's mother-in-law, Naomi, said to her, my daughter, I must find a home for you where you will be well provided for. Now Boaz, with whose women you have worked, is a relative of ours. Tonight he will be winnowing barley on the threshing floor. Wash, put on perfume, and get dressed in your best clothes. Then go down to the threshing floor, but don't let him know you're there until he's finished eating and drinking. When he lies down, note the place where he's lying. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down. He will tell you what to do. So in Ruth chapter 3, the gospel is on full display, and, and we get the privilege of, of seeing it first pre-enacted by Naomi. Specifically, we see that Naomi selflessly empties herself of everything she has left. Naomi selflessly empties herself of everything she has left. Now remember the story of Naomi. Remember what's happened with her. At the beginning of the book, we see that she and her family left Bethlehem as famine refugees, and they ended up in Moab, a, a, a country, a land that are arch enemies of Israel. And while they're in the land of Moab, Naomi's husband, Elimelech, dies. And sometime apparently after he dies, their two sons, Kilian and Malon, they marry Moabite women, Orpah and Ruth. 
And then sometime later, we don't know how long later, but uh, uh, Naomi's two sons die. And so Naomi is stuck as a famine refugee in a foreign land with two daughters-in-law who she needs to take care of. And she begins to realize, this isn't going to work. I'm not going to survive here. And so Naomi makes the trek from Moab back to Bethlehem. And as she sets out, her two daughters-in-law set out with her. But, but partway into the journey, she urges them, go back. Go back and find rest and security in your father's households. But one of her daughters-in-law, Ruth, says, no, I won't do it. I'm going with you. And there on the road between Moab and Bethlehem, Ruth makes a commitment not only to stick with Naomi. This isn't just a matter of loyalty, but Ruth makes a commitment to follow Naomi's God. We would say in, in modern language, she has a conversion experience. She becomes a follower of the God of Israel. Well, Naomi returns to Bethlehem, and when she does, the kind of the first scene in Bethlehem, we hear Naomi summarize her life, and she says that it's empty, in spite of the fact that one of her daughters-in-law, who had no obligation to, stuck with her and even became a follower of Naomi's God, in spite of that, she says, my life is empty. God has turned against me. I'm bitter. And then we saw in chapter 2 as, as God leads Ruth into the field of Boaz and Boaz blesses Ruth and Naomi. We, we see not only Boaz's loving kindness, but God's loving kindness all over that chapter. And at the end of chapter 2, a couple weeks ago, we saw that, um, that Naomi was starting to soften. Something in her was starting to Shift. And so as we enter chapter three, there's now been a couple of months and presumably a couple months of, of Boaz showing Ruth and Naomi God's loving kindness. And now what we encounter is a Naomi who doesn't so much say, My life is empty, but who seems to view her life as overflowing with God's chesed, God's loving kindness. And so, so it's like Naomi looks around and she realizes if she doesn't act now, that Ruth is going to become an empty widow. Naomi realizes that if she doesn't take action now, they, they may not make it the next 10 months until the harvest season again. She, she, she didn't know what to do. So the only thing she could do was to hatch a plan to get Ruth hitched. And so, of course, as she starts to think about that, her, her mind goes to Boaz. Boaz shows incredible kindness to Ruth and to Naomi through the barley and the wheat harvest. And, and, uh, and so perhaps he would be willing to open his home and his heart to Ruth. Now, you remember Boaz. When we first met Boaz in chapter 2, or when we first hear about him, when we first hear Naomi talk about him, she refers to Boaz as a, uh, we said the Hebrew word is goel, or in English, a, a guardian redeemer or a kinsman redeemer. That, that phrase, that Hebrew word goel, is a, is a technical term. It, and what it means for Boaz is that he has both a moral and a legal responsibility, an obligation to help Naomi purchase back Elimelech's land, you know, Naomi's dead husband, so that Ruth and Naomi would have something to live on. 
But what's interesting here is how Naomi talks about Boaz at the beginning of chapter 3. Notice again verse 2. Naomi says to Ruth, Now Boaz, with whose women you have worked, is a relative of ours. It's interesting, as Naomi describes Boaz here in chapter 3, she doesn't use the word goel, the word that carries obligation and responsibility. Matter of fact, as she described Boaz in chapter 2, she uses that word goel, and she uses another Hebrew word that means that he's a close family relative. But here in chapter 3, as Naomi begins to hatch her plan or to describe her plan, she drops goel altogether. And she refers to Boaz simply as a distant relative. Yeah, he's part of the family, but, you know, he's like the weird uncle that, that sometimes shows up or, or however you want to understand that. Now, now, what's up with that? What caused that shift that she would a chapter a couple months earlier talk about him as a, as a close relative with obligations to fulfill? And here in chapter three, she would refer to him kind of as just another extended family member. I think what we're seeing here is a shift in Naomi's perspective. We're seeing a softening of her heart. You see, when she first got back to Bethlehem, all she could feel and taste and see was the incredible grief that marked her life. Everything she knew she had lost. She had no hope coming back to Bethlehem. Or at least as she saw it, she didn't. And so when she encountered Boaz, she thought, this is it. This is what I deserve. I don't deserve all this pain and hardship and suffering. I don't know why this happened to me. It's not my just desserts. But here's Boaz. And he has an obligation to make things right for me. It's his responsibility. This is what I deserve. This is my just desserts. And, and, and he must do his part to make things right for me. And then, like I said, we, we begin to see over the next couple months as the, the barley harvest and the wheat harvest go on and Boaz continues to show Naomi and Ruth God's loving kindness. We see Naomi's heart begin to soften and she's no longer saying, this is about me. It's no longer her hardship and her, supper, her suffering and her emptiness that dominates her perspective. And so as her heart softens and she begins to realize that her life is still full of things like God's chesed, God's loving kindness, she begins to look around. And she begins to realize that she needs to do something to help Ruth. And so she hatches this plan. Let's get Ruth married. And actually, if Naomi's plan would have worked the way that Naomi sketched it out, the end of chapter three would have ended with a marriage ceremony. Naomi's plan is that Ruth is married before the night is over. She's so concerned that Ruth have a husband to take care of her, a place to find rest and security. Now, this may make it sound like Naomi's a, uh, you know, become a romantic matchmaker here. And that's actually how some Bible studies and some sermons, how, you know, how they deal with this text. But I want to suggest to you that there's more happening here. I want to suggest to you that Naomi is emptying herself of the only thing that she has left, or at least the only tangible thing. She's realized that her life is actually full of God's loving kindness, that he hasn't turned his back on her, that he hasn't turned against her. 
And so because she's still, her life is full of his loving kindness, she's able to take the one thing that's good in her life, Ruth, and she's able to give that away. You see, Naomi isn't so concerned about redeeming Elimelech's land. She's not so concerned about the family name. She's not thinking of resuscitating the family. If she was, she would have never sent Ruth to Boaz. Because as we're going to find out further in chapter 3, Naomi knows, Naomi has to know, that it's not actually Boaz's responsibility to redeem the family. He's not actually the one who should step in and be the the guardian redeemer, the Goel. But since her agenda here has nothing to do with, with, uh, with Boaz becoming the guardian redeemer, because it has nothing to do with saving the family name, I believe what Naomi is doing is pouring out what little she has left uh, in intangible goods, relationships, so that Ruth can experience something good. And I don't know about you, but as I read that and as I think about that and contemplate through that, I can't help but go back to uh, one of the verses we read last week as we talked about Easter, Philippians 2, 7, where it says that, that Jesus, although he was God, he emptied himself or he poured out of himself everything that was rightfully his. As I look at what Naomi's doing here, how she's setting aside her right to be redeemed by a Goel, as she's sending away Ruth, the only avenue, the only conduit through which food and God's blessings have come into her life, she's emptying herself of what was rightfully hers. She is pre-enacting what we see Jesus do in the Gospels. But Naomi's not the only one who's, who's uh, modeling gospel living. Let's continue to read in Ruth chapter 3, and you'll see what I mean. Ruth chapter 3, I'm going to pick up at verse 5. Ruth is now responding to Naomi's plan. She says, I'll do whatever you say. So she went down to the threshing floor and did everything her mother-in-law told her to do. When Boaz had finished eating and drinking and was in good spirits, he went over to lie down at the far end of the grain pile. Ruth approached quietly, uncovered his feet, and lay down. So far, so good, right? She's doing everything that Naomi told her to do. Verse 8, in the middle of the night, something startled the man. He turned, and there was a woman lying at his feet. What, what parent hasn't experienced this when in the middle of the night you wake up and there's your child six inches from your face staring at you? I was just like, whoa, what's going on here? Verse 9, who are you, Boaz asked. I am your servant Ruth, she said. And here is where Ruth goes off of Naomi's plan and does her own share of gospel pre-enactment. Ruth says to Boaz, spread the corner of your garment over me since you are a guardian redeemer of our family. So Naomi's plan was designed to secure Ruth a place to live, a husband, a a place where she could be secure. But Ruth says, no, 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 that's not what we're doing here. 
Ruth says, I am more interested in your needs, in your interests than I am in mine. What we see here is that, that Ruth acts out of concern for Naomi instead of out of selfish ambition. So to understand this, you need to know that in every Israelite family, there's two values that, that trump almost all other values. There's two things that matter most. The first is the, the family name. We've got to keep that going. And that's not just a, a, a value they made up. That's actually a value that God gave them in the law. But they have to make sure that the family name is not erased from the, you know, from the tribe. And the second value is they have to keep family land in family hands. So the allotment of land that they've received, they need to make sure that they do everything they can to keep that within the clan. And again, that's one of God's values for them. They didn't make these values up. These are expressed uh, in, in the, the first five books of the Old Testament, the Jewish law. And so what happens here, we see this in verse 9, if we look closely, is that as Ruth speaks to Boaz, she invokes two laws that pertain to these two values, to family name and family land. So you'll notice in verse 9, Ruth says to Boaz, spread the corner of your garment over me. This is colloquial language or a euphemism. This is, this is their way of saying Will you protect my family name? Will you marry me and protect the family name? So the law that this refers to is, is, is what's called the Leveret Law. The idea behind the Leveret Law is that if a, if a man dies before he and his wife can conceive a son to carry on the family name, so the man dies, then the wife marries the man's brother. And the idea is that the man's brother will, um, hopefully, should God bless, will impregnate the man's wife, she'll bear a son, and that son becomes not the heir of the brother, but becomes the heir of the first husband. And in this way, the family line will be carried on. Now, now here's here's what I'm suggesting. When Naomi sent Ruth to Boaz, her focus wasn't on making sure that Elimelech's or Malon, Ruth's dead husband, wasn't about making sure that their name carried on. Her concern, like I said earlier, was about making sure that Ruth had a, had a place to live. And here's why I'm fairly confident that that wasn't even on Naomi's radar. First of all, we, we talked about several weeks ago that Ruth was married to Malon for maybe as long as 10 years and had no children. So as far as Naomi is concerned, Ruth is barren. She's a barren widow. Even if there is any inkling in Naomi that perhaps Ruth could bear a son, it's a long shot. And I don't believe there's any way that Naomi, a widow herself, is going to subject her barren daughter-in-law to the pressure and the shame that would come if she's to marry Boaz and not be able to produce a son that would carry on Malon's and Elimelech's name. 
I think that's the furthest thing from Naomi's mind. No one who has watched someone struggle with infertility would ever consider putting on them the pressure and the shame of having to conceive not only a child, but specifically a son. There's no way that Naomi would do that. She knows the pain and the shame that Ruth is carrying. And so she sends Ruth to Boaz for Ruth's own good. But Ruth says, no, 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 no. I'm not concerned about my own good. I'm most concerned about Naomi and Elimelech's name. They need to carry on in Israel. So Ruth says to Boaz, will you do your part so that Elimelech's and Malon's name can carry on. I will be willing to submit myself to the, the shame and disgrace and embarrassment if I'm not able to conceive. Will you do your part? And if that's, as if that's not self-emptying enough, notice the second part of verse 9, what, what Ruth says. She says to Boaz, for you are a guardian redeemer of our family. You are a guardian redeemer of our family. Here she's appealing to that second value, the keeping family land in family hands. You see, the role of the goel, the guardian redeemer, the kinsman redeemer, was that any time a family member, and uh, you know, that starts small with you know immediate biological family, but it certainly spreads out through extended family, even to the clan and and uh, and, and the tribe. Anytime an Israelite were to lose his land for some reason, say he came on hard times and had to sell his land or part of his land, or, or like in this case, say he died and, and there was no one to carry on the land to, to take ownership and make sure that what happened needed to happen. Anytime that happened, the kinsman redeemer, the guardian redeemer law said that the closest relative possible was to buy the land back to make sure that it didn't leave the family name. And so Ruth says to Boaz here, you are a guardian redeemer. Will you please buy back the land? Will you marry me to keep the name going? Will you purchase the land so that when God blesses us and I have a son, he'll become Malon's son and he'll inherit that land? Now that maybe sounds a little selfish, but what Ruth is actually saying, like I've already mentioned, is I will subject myself to embarrassment and shame and disgrace if I'm not able to conceive so that Naomi's concerns, her interests, her needs are met and are addressed. I'll put it all on the line so that her family name can continue in Israel, so that there's an heir that follows in Elimelech's and Malon's line. By putting, by putting the, the marriage, the Leveret law, and the, the guardian redeemer, the go, by putting those two things together, Ruth is making it clear that that's her desire here, to look to Naomi's interests ahead of her own. Now, that's a pretty significant shift. You know, at the beginning of this chapter, Ruth says, Naomi, I'll do everything you say to do. And then just a few verses later, a few hours later, she's changed the plan. She's thrown it out and she's gone her own way. And here's why. You see, Naomi's plan was to find Ruth rest and security under another man's wing or in another man's home. But Ruth takes inventory and she realizes 
that she's found her rest. She's found her security under God's wings. And from that place of security and confidence, she is willing to lay it all on the line to address Naomi's needs ahead of her own. And it was a risk. It was a huge chance. Ruth had no idea how Boaz would respond, but let's look together at how Boaz actually does respond. I'm going to start reading again in chapter 3 at verse 10. Boaz says, The Lord bless you, my daughter. This kindness is greater than that which you showed earlier. You have not run after the younger men, whether rich or poor. And now, my daughter, don't be afraid. I will do for you all you ask. All of the people in my town know that you are a woman of noble character. Although it's true that I am a guardian redeemer of our family, there's another who's more closely related than I. Stay here for the night. And in the morning, if he wants to do his duty as your guardian redeemer, good. Let him redeem you. But if he's not willing, as surely as the Lord lives, I will do it. Lie here until morning. Verse 14. So she lay at his feet until morning, but got up before anyone could be recognized. And he said, no one must know that a woman came to the threshing floor. He also said, bring me the shawl you're wearing and hold it out. When she did so, he poured into it six measures of barley and placed the bundle on her. Then he went back to town. I want, you, I want to help you see here how Boaz willingly sacrificed, he willingly sacrificed to redeem Ruth and Naomi. Now, both of these laws that we've just talked about, the Leverett Law and the, the Kinsman or the Guardian Redeemer Law, they both require great sacrifice. Let's start with the Leverett Law. In some ways, we can think of the Leverett Law like what happens when unexpected guests show up to your Easter dinner. I don't know if you've ever experienced this, but when I was growing up, I experienced this all the time at my Grandma Wade's house. Grandma and Grandpa Wade already had a big family. They had eight kids. Of course, my mom is one of those. And their oldest daughter had eight kids of her own. And, and the rest of the family, you know, the rest of the children didn't just have a few kids either. Uh, it was a large family. And so what often happened at family get-togethers is that because there were so many people, the food was often already stretched thin. Uh, and it was not unusual before, you know, when we would gather for a family get-together, before we would eat, I would watch and I would see other families who either weren't really part of that family, maybe they were extended family, or who weren't related at all. And they would, they would show up to our family get-together, and, and oftentimes they would come in with very little food or with no food at all. Now, I've never claimed to be good at math, but when it comes to food, I can figure things out pretty quick. And I would watch as these other families came in before the mealtime, and, and I would go, oh, man, my two slices of peanut butter pie just turned into half a slice. And we see the same thing at play with the Leverett Law. Remember again that with the Leverett Law, the, the brother of a deceased man marries that man's wife with the goal of producing a male heir. And that son that was born to that second marriage doesn't become a descendant 
or, a, or an heir of the second husband, he becomes an heir of the first husband. Which means that, that um, the inheritance from the dead husband would pass on to the son, or actually the inheritance of the father. So imagine if there's two brothers, one of them dies, and the second one's going, yeah, I'm going to inherit everything. But then the leveret law clicks in, and uh, sure enough, he bears to his brother's wife a son, and now it's back to splitting the inheritance two ways. And so you can see how with the leveret law, the inheritance, like pie at a family get-together, the piece becomes smaller and smaller as this takes effect. And so what we're seeing here for Boaz, and in Boaz's case, it's not even necessarily a matter of, of him losing some inheritance. But it's a matter when these two laws are combined of him spending money to purchase land that he won't get anything from. Because see, the guardian redeemer law says that I've got to put out significant resources to purchase back this land. And I won't get any revenue from it. I won't get any of the goods from it because it's not actually my land. I'm purchasing it back for my family member so that it can stay in the line, so that it can stay deeded under the family name. And so what Boaz does is, is he, he says to Ruth, I'll marry you and I'll do my part to fulfill my leverage responsibility to you. And I'll buy back Emelech's land and all that land will become our son, but it'll go all to him and it'll pass down through a Lemelech's line through our son. That's a significant financial sacrifice for Boaz. More than money, though, I want you to notice that Boaz willingly lays his reputation on the line for Ruth. Okay, so, so to understand how, how Boaz lays his reputation on the line, let's talk a little bit about the threshing floor. The threshing floor was often located outside of the city gates because they needed an open place where the breeze could blow through, which, which meant that it was a little less secure. Not only was it a little less secure, but the threshing floor, especially when it was in use, uh, was known to be a place of revelry. Just imagine the scene. The, the harvest is over, and so now the harvesters or the landowners are beginning to see how much wealth their fields have grown for them in those growing seasons. So as they're threshing their wheat, their barley, uh, what have you, um, spirits get a little high. There's feasting. There's celebration. This is, this is payday or, or pay month, really as they see their wealth and they celebrate. And so it wasn't unusual, historical sources tell us, for the threshing floor to be a place of um, revelry and partying and, and drunkenness, a place where no woman would go. We even see that here in the verses we read, right? No one must know that a woman came to the threshing floor because if a woman goes to the threshing floor, especially in this culture where there's revelry and partying going on, the assumption is that she's gone there to provide specific favors to the men on the threshing floor. So when Boaz wakes up in the middle of the night and he finds a woman laying at his feet, the underlying presumption is that she is there to offer him some kind of sexual favor in return for some kind of other favor. 
And so when he wakes up and he finds out that there's a woman at his feet, his best, most immediate option is to tell her to leave. You see, Boaz is a man of character. He's an upstanding man. And for him to engage in that kind of impropriety would ruin his name in Bethlehem. So if he's going to protect his reputation, he has to send her away. But, but notice he doesn't do that. When he finds out it's Ruth, he asks her to stay there. Because to send her away while protecting his reputation would do her incredible harm. You see, if Boaz is to, in that moment when he wakes up and finds her there, if he's to send her away, he risks that she'll be found by another man and that she'll be taken advantage of. And even if that doesn't happen, there's a risk that other people, men or women, would see her leaving the threshing floor, would recognize her, and would begin to spread unseemly things about her. Things that weren't true because nothing had happened, but when gossips get to gossiping, they don't really care about truth so much. And so instead of sending her away, risking her, her, her physical safety and, and risking that her reputation could be smeared, he urges her to remain under his protection until morning. That's a risky move. Because if any of the other men who were you know, probably passed out drunk, if they were to wake up and, and see Ruth and Boaz there together on the threshing room floor, his reputation is gone just like that. But Boaz says, my reputation matters less to me than your safety and than your reputation. He lays his reputation, his well-being on the line for Ruth because he was a man of character. Because although he couldn't have put it in these words, he was pre-enacting what his future descendant would do for all of us. You know, as we look at the story of, of Naomi and Ruth and Boaz today, it's relatively easy for us to see Jesus in these characters. It's easy for us to look at Naomi emptying herself out of, uh, of the only blessing that she had left and to say that is what Jesus did as he emptied himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. It's, it's easy for us to look, at, to look at Ruth and say, She's doing what Jesus did. She's putting other people's interests ahead of herself. She's willing to subject herself to all kinds of shame and disgrace and embarrassment for the good of someone else. We see Jesus in that. It's easy for us to look at Boaz, the, the Goel, and to say, he may be the small R redeemer, but he looks a lot like the big R redeemer, the one who would lay everything on the line, who would subject himself to the embarrassment and the shame and the disgrace of death on a cross so that we could benefit. But I would suggest as we look at Ruth chapter three today, as we look at the lives of these characters, the question isn't, can we see Jesus in, in Naomi and Ruth and Boaz? I would suggest that the questions their story prompts us to ask, the question we need to ask is, can other people see Jesus in my life? Can other people see Jesus in your life, in our life 
together. That's the point of what we see here in Ruth chapter three. That's where we take this and apply it to our lives. Is my life so selfless and so others focused that when people look at me, they see the gospel lived out before them? You know, that's one thing to ask when life is going well when we're accomplishing everything we set out to accomplish, when our kids are living in a way that pleases us, when, when we're healthy and happy and holiness is coming easy. It's a whole other thing to ask that question, though, when life is difficult, when there doesn't seem to be any real end in sight to this global pandemic, and, and every day as we scrape by to, to pay the bills and to find just enough good attitude to remain stuck at home, it, it's not easy. It's not easy when we're faced with unfortunate developments and the hard choices that those require us to make. It's not easy when our faith is stretched to the limits by suffering and hardship and pain that we probably didn't deserve, but that we have to deal with anyway. But really, isn't that where we spend most of our days anyway? As followers of Jesus Christ, don't we find ourselves constantly confronted with difficult situations, with hardships, with suffering, and, and just other realities that force us to choose, am I going to be guided by self-interest or for the sake of the gospel, will I empty myself of everything that's rightfully mine by sacrificing for others? Any day that's a hard choice to make, but it brings us to our big idea for today's message. It's impossible it is not possible to be self-protecting and self-obsessed and to be in the center of God's will for your life. It's not possible to look around and say, me, 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 do it my way, cater to me, I'm most important. You cannot live like that and live in the center of God's will for your life. That's not the way the gospel works. So what do we do with that? Let's talk about three things. Let's talk, first of all, about these stay-at-home orders. Okay, I know. Now we're, now we're going to start stepping on toes. Raise your hand wherever you're at. I can't see it, but the other people in your room where you're at should see it. Raise your hand if you've left home because you're going stir-crazy and you just need to get out of the house. Go ahead, raise your hand. Mine's raised. I'll admit I've done that. If you've raised your hand for reasons that are about your own sanity or your own need for a change of perspective of environment, raise your hand. Now with our hands raised, let me ask us the question. Who are we serving when we do that? Are we putting the needs of others ahead of our own need when we leave home just because we need a change of environment? Now understand, I'm not, I'm not casting shade here. I'm not throwing stones. I know that some of us leave, leave home for, um, for reasons that are others serving. I know that sometimes we leave home because we have to get groceries to feed our family or to feed our neighbor, or to, to feed our widowed mother. I, I get that. That isn't self-serving. That's serving others. 
I understand that there's those of us who are, are essential employees and whether we want to or not, we have to leave home to go to our, our job. That's, that's providing a service to other people. That's looking to others' needs ahead of our own. I understand that, that some of us, like we've celebrated people like Larry and Peggy Schumacher and our kitchen workers, some of us leave home because we're going to provide immediate relief to people. We're serving them meals or we're taking them face masks or we're doing things that are about other people's needs, not ours. But the question I'm forcing myself to ask that I have felt convicted as I've studied this, test, this text is, am I leaving home just because I need a change of scenery, just because I need to get out of the house, just because I'm going crazy? Because if that's my motivation, I'm not actually serving others. I'm putting my needs ahead of other people. Let's talk about another thing. Let's talk about these stimulus checks that we got this week. Many of us watching probably this week on tax day, ironically, received money from the government. Let me ask you, what's happening with your stimulus check? Do you already have it spent? Do you, did you have it spent before it ever hit your bank account? What are you going to do with those funds? Are they going to be about you? Or is this an opportunity to bless someone else? Now, don't get me wrong. Those stimulus checks from the, the government, those are important. I mean, some of us need those to pay rent or to pay the mortgage or to pay utilities or to buy groceries for our family. And if that's the case, by all means, use it for that. By doing that, by paying your bills and feeding your family, according to 1 Timothy 5.8, you are doing what God wants you to do with those. You are being godly and using those funds in those ways. But if your family's fed and your bills are up to date, have you considered using some of those funds to bless another person or another family or another faith-based organization in a way that you couldn't normally? Just a thought. It's an opportunity to put someone else's needs ahead of your need for a bigger or a better toy or a bigger cushion in your savings account. And finally, let's talk about dishes. Let's talk about dirty dishes. Yesterday, about a half hour before I had to leave home to come here to the church for our production rehearsal, I went into the kitchen with the intention of taking care of the dirty dishes so that Sarah didn't have to. Um, Sarah's been working on a project for some other people, and, and I really wanted her to be able to focus on that. And so I thought, I'll take care of the dishes and it'll be done. Well, as I walk into the kitchen, it just so turns out that's the same time that everyone else in the family decides they need to use the toaster, which is right above our dishwasher. And so I'm watching it going, well, I still have time. And I watch one family member after another family member go to the toaster. It's only a two-slot toaster. And, and so I'm going, man, I'm running out of time here. And so I, you know, I, I finally said, I was planning on doing dishes before I left. And, and so as soon as you guys are done, I'll go ahead and do that. And, and, and I may need to leave a, leave a little late. Well, Sarah looks at me and she says, don't worry about dishes. I'll take care of them. I said, no, 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 let me do them so that you can sit and yarn while I'm gone and you can work on that project you're doing. She said, no, I'll take care of them. You don't need to worry about it. Now, now don't be confused. <laughs> Sarah and I aren't, aren't always selfless like that. Uh, usually the, the, the conversations in our house is, no, it's your turn to do the dishes. No, it's your turn. No, it's your turn. But take that story and convert the word dishes to whatever fits in your life. 
in your relationships. Maybe, maybe in your life, it's about taking the trash out so someone else doesn't have to, or maybe it's about doing more than your part of the group project. Maybe it's about not returning your brother's snotty glare with a rude comment. Maybe it's about uh, not remaining silent while another coworker gets overlooked or mistreated or is acting unethically. Here's the point. To live a gospel-centered, a gospel-focused life requires of us. If we're going to live in the center of God's will, it requires of us that we put the needs of others ahead of our own needs. And that means everything from dirty dishes to sacrificing everything and laying everything on the line the way that the, the characters in Ruth chapter 3 did. This is the only way to live a life that reenacts the gospel a life that imitates what Jesus Christ did. And so today, as we, uh, as we spend some time here praying together at the end of this sermon, let me encourage you, make it your goal this week, make it your goal that just like Naomi and Ruth and Boaz pre-enacted the gospel of Jesus Christ, that this week in the small things and in the big, big things, as God gives you opportunity, you will reenact the same attitude that Jesus Christ had, where others' needs become more important than your own. And in that way, you live a gospel-focused life in the center of God's will. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for this, this example that we have here in Ruth chapter 3. Maybe the last place we would expect to see the gospel lived out in the Old Testament before Jesus even comes on the scene as far as we know. But thank you for the example that we have that we can, all of us who are followers of Christ, who have, who have taken shelter under God's wings, we can live out the gospel by putting other people's needs ahead of our own. We can be more concerned about others than we are about ourselves, And in that way, we reenact, we demonstrate, we embody what the gospel means and what Jesus Christ did for us. Father, in my own life this week, would you help me to have that attitude that says, it's not about me, it's, 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 it's about you. You are more important to me than I am to me. Would you help my, my friends who are watching here to find concrete, practical ways this week from, from dirty dishes to life-altering sacrifices that demonstrate the gospel? And Father, may we together be a community of faith who says the needs of the other are more important to us than our own needs. Father, we pray that not for our glory, not so that we have some sense of self-righteousness, that, that we're earning your favor, or we deserve to be your children, but we pray that so that your name and your fame, your glory can continue to spread throughout this community and that, that, that you you would give us the opportunity to introduce more people to you and help them take their next steps towards being a big Christian. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.